May I have your attention? Good, good afternoon and welcome. Uh, welcome to this next panel uh, for the 25th anniversary of the Federalist Society National Lawyers Convention. Uh, our panel this afternoon is, is uh, sponsored by the Federalism and Separation of Powers Practice Group. Uh, and the title is Religion, Early America, and the 14th Amendment. Uh, the Supreme Court of the United States held in 1947 in the Everson decision that the Establishment Clause was incorporated and made applicable to the states by the 14th Amendment. For more than 50 years, that conclusion was accepted almost without challenge. Uh, you see some seeds of it in uh, and in the dissent, for example, of uh, then Justice Rehnquist and Wallace versus Jeff Wallace versus Jeffrey. But in, uh, in three recent opinions, Justice Clarence Thomas has suggested that the incorporation of the Establishment Clause is particularly problematic because important historical evidence suggests that it was intended as much as a federalism clause as a prohibition of a national church. This panel will explore three matters. One, whether the Establishment Clause was properly incorporated. Two, if not, whether it should be unincorporated. And three, if it remains incorporated, whether, there are, whether the Establishment Clause ought to apply with less rigor than it applies against the federal government based on the state's traditional police power to foster the health, safety, welfare, and morals of the people. As usual, uh, to address this topic, the Federalist Society has assembled a, a distinguished panel, the third member of which uh, is en route uh, to our conference. Her uh, train is supposed to have arrived uh, a little while ago at Union Station, uh, so fortuitously she's supposed to speak third anyway. Uh, if I ask uh, Philip Hamburger to, uh, to continue uh, speaking to, to filibuster a little longer, it's because uh, Professor Hamilton hasn't reached her, her destination. Uh, we're going to hear first uh, from the chairman of this practice group, uh, Dr. John Eastman, who is the dean and Donald P. Kennedy chair in law at Chapman University uh, School of Law. Uh, before joining the Chapman faculty, Dr. Eastman served as a law clerk to Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court of the United States, and before that, uh, to Judge Mike Ludig on the United States Court of Appeals uh, for the Fourth Circuit. This will be a remarkable day in history. Uh, we will all witness an occasion where John Eastman will actually take probably the moderate position. <laughs> We're going to test that. Uh, our, our next uh, presenter, uh, and I, I'm going to go ahead and uh, rather than interrupt their remarks with uh, further introductions, go ahead and introduce them now in the order in which they will speak. Uh, our next presenter will be uh, Philip Hamburger, who is the Maurice and Hilda Friedman Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. He writes on religious liberty, freedom of speech and the press, and other questions of constitutional law and its history. Uh, among his many uh, publications, most notably is probably his book, uh, Separation of Church and State, which was published uh, by the Harvard University Press in uh, 2002. Uh, 
Professor Hamburger also is the source of what may have puzzled many of you in the audience uh, as you were assembling here this afternoon. If you if, if you were handed a leaflet um, that, that I find startling, uh, particularly uh, entitled Americanism versus Roman Catholicism, and it begins with uh, with with this declaration, Roman Catholicism is an enemy of our American government. Uh, that, Professor Hamburger is the source of this leaflet. <laughs> he, he, he will use it as a prop and, and explain later. So, you know, don't notify Leonard Leo that we uh, <laughs> that we have a leafleting problem uh, at, at our uh, panel discussion. Our last our last panelist uh, is Professor Marcy Hamilton, who is one of the, the country's leading church state scholars, as well as an expert on federalism and representation. Uh, During this uh, academic year, she is a visiting professor of public affairs and the Kathleen and Martin Crane Senior Research Fellow in the Program in Law and Public Affairs at Princeton University. Professor Hamilton holds the Paul R. Verkyle Chair in Public Law at the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law of Yeshiva University. Uh, she is the author of, um, of a couple of books, uh, Justice Denied, What America Must Do to Protect Its Children, published by Cambridge, uh, to be published by Cambridge this next year, and uh, God versus the Gavel, uh, Religion and the Rule of Law, which was published by the Cambridge University Press in 2005 and which is now available as of September of this year uh, in, in paperback. Uh, Professor Heisman, I'm going to um, turn the program over uh, to you. Thank you, Judge Pryor. Uh, we thought for a minute it was a Senate confirmation committee uh, passing those leaflets out. <laughs> well, well, since you've already laid the gauntlet on whether I can be moderate, let me let me disabuse everyone of that in the moment. Um, this is the 60th anniversary. It's the 25th anniversary of the Federal Society, which is a great thing to celebrate. It's also the 60th anniversary of Everson, which is not so great to celebrate. In fact, I'm going to stake out a pretty hard ground here. I believe um, that it is one of the most radical transformations in constitutional law um, uh, ever to occur, uh, with one of the greatest negative consequences for the long-term possibility of continued success of this nation ever. Um, It was done by judicial fiat. It's not even the holding in the case. There's no thoughtful, reasoned analysis, but by pure ipsedictor. In one sentence from the pen of Justice Black, if the Establishment Clause means anything, it means at least this. Neither a state nor the federal government can pass laws which aid one religion, aid all religions, or prefer one religion to another. Now, in that short sentence, he did two very radical things. He completely altered the notion of the Establishment Clause, even as it existed against the federal government. The non-preferential view of the Establishment Clause that had prevailed up until then now becomes no aid to any religion, no aid to all religions. It completes uh, the, the kind of separate, complete separation, wall of separation of church and state metaphor. Um, and he just kind of tucks it in there, aid all religions. And it's not even at issue in the particular case. Um, 
Well, we'll leave that aside today. The, the, the other radical part of that statement that I want to focus on today is the throwing in of the word state. Neither a state nor the federal government can pass any such laws. Never before had the Establishment Clause been understood to apply to the states. Uh, it, of course, does so by virtue of the 14th Amendment. The citations to support his authority are, are to 14th Amendment incorporation cases involving the freedom of speech or the free exercise clause. And he just says, look, we've already incorporated the First Amendment without any reasoning or any discussion whatsoever of the obvious differences between those clear liberty protecting clauses and this different in kind clause of the Establishment Clause. Not a word, not a word of discussion. And for more than a half century, um, no one seriously challenged Justice Black's Ipsa Dixit here. Now, to be sure, uh, Justice Potter Stewart um, questioned it in his dissenting opinion in Shemp in 1963. He wrote, the Establishment Clause was primarily an attempt to ensure that Congress not only would be powerless to establish a national church, but would also be unable to interfere with existing state establishments. And Justice Rehnquist made a similar point when he uh, dissented in Wallace versus Joffrey, as, as Judge Pryor pointed out, in 1985. Um, and then uh, Justice Harlan, concurring in Waltz versus Tax Commission in the city of New York in 1970, questioned whether applying the clause in the same manner um, as it applies to the federal government when you're dealing with state issues made sense. But that's about all that we have challenging Justice Black's views back in Everson. Well, 55 years after that opinion comes down, Justice Thomas gives us an invitation. In Zellman versus Simmons-Harris, the Ohio School voucher case in 2002, he begins his opinion by saying, as a matter of first principles, I question whether our normal establishment clause test should be applied to the states. And then in Elk Grove uh, versus Newdow in 2004, the infamous Pledge of Allegiance case, he has several comments uh, furthering his discussion. The difficult question of whether and how the Establishment Clause should constrain state action under the 14th Amendment, he talks about. He, then he goes on. I would take this opportunity to begin the process of rethinking the Establishment Clause, which he would acknowledge is a federalism provision, which for this reason resists incorporation. And then a year later in Van Orden versus Perry, the Texas Ten Commandments cases, he says, I have previously suggested that the clause's text and history resist incorporation against the states. Now, note this is not your typical invitation. When in Newdow, he suggests that he would take the opportunity to begin rethinking this. But then he proceeds to tell us that he would acknowledge it's a federalism provision that resists incorporation. He's made pretty clear what his thinking is on the subject. The rethinking that needs to occur uh, to take place is not his so much as his colleagues and ours and ours. Now, it seems to me that Justice Thomas's rethinking invitation is particularly appropriate to this society, which is really devoted both to understanding the original understanding of the clauses and, and trying to recover them wherever possible, but also, first and foremost, reminding us of the importance of federalism to our overall structure of government. So I think there are a couple of questions we should consider in taking Justice Thomas' invitation to rethink uh, Everson seriously. 
just what was the original meaning of the Establishment Clause. Now, here I'm not going to talk about the, the, the current fight, uh, whether it's the non-preferential view or the non-coercion view or the strict separation of church and state view or all those different, all the endorsement view, the psychological coercion view or any of those things that are, are the fodder for current uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence on the Establishment Clause. I'm instead talking about the federalism issue. And does it really resist incorporation? Then the second issue, it seems to me, we should address is, so what if it does? Apart from our devotion to originalism, is this just one of those cases where 60 years is too much water under the bridge? What is to be gained by restoring the original meaning? And what is to be lost if we don't? So let me take those two questions in turn. The original understanding. When Madison first proposed the language that would ultimately become the, the establishment clause of the First Amendment, here was the language he suggested uh, in Congress, in the House of Representatives. Nor shall any national religion be established. A committee report modified it slightly. No religion established by law. And that slight change is been, been, been used by folks to try and claim that it wasn't just a national church that they were trying to prohibit, but any aid whatsoever to religion. But if you read the debates, and they're very sparse, but if you read the debates, that's not what the objections to that language was. The objections were rather just the opposite. Representative Sylvester, in response to the committee report and, and derivatively by Madison's original proposal, feared that those clauses would have a tendency to abolish religion altogether. Uh, Representative Huntington agreed. He says the words might be taken in such latitude as to be extremely hurtful to religion. And they and he gave us an example. They might interfere with the ability of, of churches to sue to enforce contractual obligations on, that they had relied on to build a church or what have you. Now, those are all things that are going on to local government. So Livermore comes back and he proposes to add the word Congress shall make no laws touching religion. And it's significant because that's the closest language during the debate um, to the final version that we actually get. The, the language ultimately adopted comes out of a, of a conference committee. And here we have the limitation that it applies only to Congress, but also this odd language touching religion rather than not establishing religion or not establishing a national religion. Um, and, and given that Livermore's suggestion comes on the heels of Sylvester and Huntington's concern that the first proposals were not protective enough of religion in the states. Um, I think we see coming out of that congressional debate the twofold purpose. No national church, but there were a lot of other ways in which the federal government might interfere with state support or, or, or uh, reliance on religion as it goes about its, its daily efforts. Um, the privileges and immune, uh, I'm sorry, the, the necessary and proper clause it was front and center in the fight over the ratification of the Constitution and how expansive that authority was. And, and one of the concerns was that a Congress might use the necessary and proper clause to, to, to use means tied to some other delegated power to restrict or otherwise shut down religious efforts in the states. And so Livermore's proposal, Congress shall make no laws touching religion, seems to very neatly encapsulate both sides of that. No national church 
and no federal interference otherwise with the state supports of religion. In other words, this is the way we're going to leave this question to the states. And some states like Virginia might go Jefferson's way of a fairly strict separation. And other states like Massachusetts might have a fully established church. Um, but because it was the states where the police powers were going to reside, that power to regulate the health, safety, welfare and morals of the people, that we were going to leave those questions to the more local government rather than having a one size fits all rule come out of Washington, which they did think would be destructive of religion. This doesn't change uh, much in the Senate. We've got a couple of other proposals in the Senate, but then it goes to a conference committee, uh, which consisted of several members of the clergy, people who, uh, who were um, members of Congress at the time that were on that conference committee. And then the language we get, um, Congress shall make no law um, uh, respecting an establishment of religion is very similar to the proposal that Livermore gave us. Um, now, those twin things, I think, perfectly answer um, uh, Representative Sylvester's objection. And this is now, I think, fair to say some pretty prominent scholarship over the last quarter century or, or, or 20 years has started to retake up this this charge. Akhil Amar, um, um, uh, who I, I don't think probably began out to lead to this conclusion, um, has, has written that the clause made clear that Congress could not interfere with the existing state establishments. And I think that's the right historical record. Just, uh, just a story um, uh, said that the Constitution left religion to the states. Um, and so th- you, you get this invitation from Justice Thomas, and here's what he says in New Doubt, picking up on this theme. The Establishment Clause is best understood as a federalism provision. It protects state establishments, but does not protect any individual rights. So the notion of incorporation of individual rights through the liberty uh, uh, component of the Due Process Clause in the 14th Amendment um, makes a lot less sense when you're talking about the Establishment Clause than when you were talking about the Free Speech or the Free Exercise Clause. Justice Potter Stewart said, described it as an irony of incorporation that a clause evidently designed to leave the states free to go their own way should now have become a restriction on their autonomy. Okay, so now my second question. Why does it matter? Aren't we better off with the separation of church and state and all the religious pluralism that we have? Well, there's an aspect beyond just getting the constitutional question right that we ought to be focused on. If we were to design a system today, would we have a separation clause or would we have one that allowed religion to flourish side by side and in and in um, collaboration with at least local governments? Let me give you a few um, uh, uh, things from the founding generation. About a minute. The Northwest Ordinance, religion, morality and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind. Schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. When you go through the founder statements on this, and we'll do more of it in the Q&A, they are full of recognition um, that you cannot expect to have a self-governing people in a, in a government that will sustain itself over the long term, in this experiment in self-government that will succeed over the long term, if you don't have a fundamental reliance on virtue. Now, virtue is not the same thing of religion, of course. But President Washington, in his farewell address to us, his kind of last charge to his fellow citizens, reminds us that we would be foolish. Reason and experience both forbid us to think that we could accomplish this civic education and moral virtue without reliance on religion. 
When you're talking about the long-term ability or capacity to sustain a self-governing set of institutions, uh, it requires more than anything else a virtue in the citizenry. And the founders all thought that you get that virtue in the citizenry with reliance and collaboration with religion. Um, If we're not going to fix this, we may find ourselves in deep trouble in the long run. Thank you. Well, I thought there for a moment I would be arrested for leafleting on private property. (laughs) It's conventionally said that the 14th Amendment incorporated the United States Bill of Rights against the states. And the 14th Amendment, thus allegedly, applies the First Amendment to the states. This is an important constitutional claim, and it is therefore essential to ask, is it supported by the evidence? Is there really any evidence that the 14th Amendment incorporated the First Amendment, let alone any other part of the Bill of Rights? And if not, how did the Supreme Court come to incorporate the Bill of Rights? It's a large topic, and obviously I won't be able to talk about all of it today, but it may be possible to pick out some salient strands that perhaps have had less attention than they deserve. The court's account of incorporation is simply an assumption that incorporation was the intent of the framers and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment. Yet the framers and ratifiers were never very explicit about incorporation, if they alluded to it at all. And therefore, the scholarly controversy about incorporation uh, has tended, in the words of one distinguished scholar, to seem like a dispute about how one should listen to the sounds of silence. And obviously, those are not my words. Silence is poor evidence of intent. It's sometimes illuminating, but not always very clearly. And therefore, the conclusion that incorporation was intended has always seemed very tenuous. One might think that's the end of the matter, that the intent is ambiguous and the Supreme Court has resolved the ambiguity and we should just live with that in favor of incorporation. But it turns out that there is much evidence about incorporation, evidence that has been largely ignored. And the evidence suggests, first, that the 14th Amendment did not incorporate the Bill of Rights, certainly did not incorporate the First Amendment. And second, that the Supreme Court incorporated the Bill of Rights not in an enlightened development of some sort of living constitution, but rather in response to a culture of nativist Americanism. So first, did the 14th Amendment incorporate the 14th Amendment, did the 14th Amendment incorporate the First Amendment against the states? And about this, the evidence is fairly clear. The contemporaries who cared most about incorporating the First Amendment, did not think the 14th Amendment accomplished this. Many Americans in the 1870s wanted incorporation of the First Amendment, and although their views are usually left out of the history of the 14th Amendment, they're important because it shows that the early advocates of incorporating the First Amendment uh, did not think that this was a reasonable interpretation of the 14th Amendment. They understood, in fact, that you needed to get a new constitutional amendment. So... In 1870, for example, a prominent New York judge proposed an amendment to the First Amendment so that it would read, 
neither Congress nor any state shall make any law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And he explained in a pamphlet, and this is a quotation, the proposed amendment prohibits a state from establishing any religion or preventing its free exercise. The writer has assumed, that is the judge, that there is nothing in the Constitution as it stands which prevents a state from doing either. And that's in 1870, just after the adoption of the 14th Amendment. This judge acknowledged that there were clauses in the Constitution that could be construed to incorporate the First Amendment against the states. But he thought that this would require the clauses, and this is a quotation, he thought that this sort of interpretation would require the clauses to be tortured into construction prohibitory of state establishment of religion. And by the way, which clauses did he think could be tortured to justify incorporation? Article 4 on privileges and immunities, perhaps, and a guarantee of a Republican form of government. Not, not the 14th Amendment, of which he was fully aware it had been passed just two years earlier. The 14th Amendment thus was not even among the clauses that could be tortured to mean incorporation. And nor was this a casual perspective. Later on, he comes back to the theme to insist, and again a quotation, there is nothing in the Constitution as it stands which forbids a state from establishing a religion. Now, his contemporaries who shared his concern about the First Amendment, that it should apply to the states, agreed and similarly demanded amendments. So in 1874, and again in 1876, the National Liberal League proposed amendments applying the First Amendment to the states. They worried, they explained, the Constitution contains no provision prohibiting the several states from establishing state religion or otherwise restricting religious liberty. And they therefore proposed their own revision of the First Amendment. Neither Congress nor any state shall make any law, etc., etc. This, they explained, would limit the power of not only of Congress, but also, and again a quotation, of all branches and departments of government, national or state. It's pretty clear stuff, isn't it? The original Blaine Amendment was not an amendment to the state constitutions, but a proposal for an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And in 1875, when this is proposed, it also recognizes there was no incorporation under the 14th Amendment. It stated no state shall make any law, et cetera, et cetera. And all sorts of politicians proposed these sort of things. For example, Daniel Ullman, a prominent politician at the time, suggests his own, suggests his own amendment, no state shall make any law, et cetera. The evidence of this sort is overwhelming. Not even the advocates of incorporating the First Amendment relied on the 14th Amendment. They assumed further amendment was necessary. And this leads to the second question. How did the judges come to believe in incorporation? And here the story gets more interesting. For the answer is as much cultural as legal. And it lies in this culture of nativist Americanism. Nativists were native-born, proudly native-born Protestant Americans who feared immigrants and especially, of course, Catholics. From 1840 to roughly 1940, they joined all sorts of nativist fraternal organizations, hundreds of them. One such group we may still know about is the Know-Nothings, but there are many others, and they all campaign against foreigners. The most famous 20th century nativist fraternal organization was the Ku Klux Klan, not the original Klan of the 1860s, but the second revised Klan of the 1920s. 
and they hate blacks, but perhaps especially they hate Catholics. In opposition to foreigners, nativists developed ideals of Americanism. They sought to preserve American liberty and American rights, and they thereby gradually blurred the distinction between state and federal bills of rights. They envisioned a single set of American freedoms in an American Bill of Rights, which they associated with the U.S. Bill of Rights. Now, one reason that this notion of American rights appealed to nativists was that they had a prejudiced, anti-Catholic, and more generally anti-ecclesiastical vision of religious liberty, and particularly the First Amendment. Rather than advocate religious liberty in terms supplied by the First Amendment, Nativists popularized the ideal of separation of church and state. And they declared this to be an American liberty protected by the First Amendment. Nativists thus alter the very meaning of the First Amendment to discriminate against churches with ecclesiastical authority, the prototype of which for them, of course, is the Catholic Church. The phrase separation of church and state, as you can tell just from the words, discriminates, distinguishes between a church and undifferentiated religiosity, between distinct religions on the one hand and individualistic spirituality on the other. And when nativists combined this separation of church and state with their ideals of American liberty, they could deprive Catholics of their rights at all levels of government, both federal and state. It was to illustrate this that I distributed that pamphlet that may have disturbed a few of you. It's typical of, in its nativist tone in advocating separation of church and state. What's unusual about it, very unusual and amusing, is that instead of substituting separation of church and state for the First Amendment, which is the conventional approach, this pamphlet substitutes separation of church and state for the Tenth Amendment. And that is suggestive, isn't it, of how this is tied to questions of incorporation. The nativist vision of American liberty, and especially their vision of the First Amendment, was an expression of aggressive majoritarianism. As one nativist explained, certain principles of government, certain safeguards for the liberty and rights of our citizens were placed in the Constitution. These provisions are the essence of Americanism. Whoever violates them is un-American and disloyal which would suggest that some of us on this panel are un-American and disloyal. In this culture of Americanism, a unified American vision of liberty became widespread and it transcended most political divisions. Thus, one did not have to be a Klan member to support separation of church and state or to support incorporation. Uh, for example, Alexander Mickeljohn, uh, not exactly a Klan member, to put it mildly, uh, extolled the American ideal. And this becomes a pervasive sentiment. And in these circumstances, it should be no surprise that the justice of the Supreme Court, having been educated in an America of American liberties, which Americans held against states as well as federal government, would eventually take this perspective. They were not nativists. Well, except one who switched his robes from white to black. But uh, on the whole, they merely adopted their culture. And... This left them uncritically open to what became incorporation. The reality is that we all absorb something of the culture of our time, and in this way, the prejudices of nativism eventually ran a steamroller over federalism, allowing nativist prejudices to be imposed not really at the federal level, but at the state. Nativist ideals flattened out the differences between our different bills of rights. We have 51 of them, 
and turned them into one big amorphous bill of rights. And the Supreme Court, from this perspective, simultaneously incorporates the Bill of Rights and requires separation of church and state as the measure of the Establishment Clause. In conclusion, the evidence has sobering implications for religious liberty and for federalism. It does not necessarily require any particular constitutional conclusion. There are a lot of reasonable views on all of this, and I'm not taking any particular view as to what the Constitution should require at the moment. All I seek to point out is that if we look at the evidence and face up to it, as I think we ought to, it loosens up the presuppositions in favor of incorporation. The evidence shows that 19th century advocates of incorporating the First Amendment did not think the 14th Amendment did this for them. And it also shows, second, that nativism was the context in which 20th century Supreme Court justices interpret the Establishment Clause to mean separation church and state and incorporate the Bill of Rights against the states. Again, I cannot emphasize that this does not preclude arguments for incorporation, the wide range of methodologies we could employ, but it shifts the burden of persuasion. If you want to stand up for incorporation, do so. But you need to acknowledge the prejudice background and you need to explain the legitimacy of a First Amendment and a federal structure reshaped by prejudice. Thank you. I'd like to thank the Federalist Society for inviting me today. I always enjoy uh, meeting up with friends here and uh, I'd like to apologize for Amtrak. Uh, apparently, there were leaves on the track. You would have thought they'd gotten around that a few years ago, but uh, we had, they had to put sand in the engine, which didn't sound right to me, but whatever. Okay. Um, I'm going to focus, in the end, on Justice Thomas's reintroduction or introduction of the notion of federalism as a way of reading uh, incorporation or disincorporation, whichever position he's taking in it. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Uh, but I'd like to start with a background uh, of the way in which religion and the state are grounded in the culture and uh, then to move on to uh, how to read what Justice Thomas is actually suggesting. Uh, you know, the values of the framers were deeply theological in the sense that by the time they got to the convention, they all agreed on the fallen nature of man that you can trust no one, no human, holding power. And so it was absolutely necessary, to the extent that they could, to divide power, to separate power, to distance powerful entities from each other, to pit them against each other, and to learn from the abuses of power in Europe. That was the atmosphere at the Constitutional Convention. And religion was mentioned twice. Once when it was proposed there be a chaplain to provide prayers, nobody would pay, that was the end of that. And secondly, when James Madison said that he wanted to make sure that we didn't replicate the problems in England of religion determining who would vote. Now, the Establishment Clause, whether it applies to the federal government, the states, or uh, local, wherever it applies, it is a brilliant innovation 
in the sense that this is the first time that a governing group has proposed that religion and the state be clearly distinguished from each other, that the one would not be permitted to be in union with the other to control the country. This was a response, obviously, to England, to the European establishments. It's a brilliant move, and in my view, actually, it's the reason for the vibrancy of religion in the United States. You know, we have many democracies around the world, and many of them do not have separation of church and state or disestablishment principles. But none of them have the same degree of vibrancy and intense religious fervor among such a wide diversity of religious groups. That's what distinguishes the United States from every other democracy in the world, and I'll get back to that. But having said that, that diversity does create its problems, as Philip has pointed out. What was religion at the time of the framing when they would have been thinking about the Establishment Clause and these issues? It was characterized by division, distinction, and difference. The Massachusetts Congregationalists were intent on either removing or exterminating the Quakers and the Baptists. It was, in fact, the Baptists, not the Catholics, who were the first to think in terms of separation. And why? Because they were an abused minority. They were told they couldn't believe what they wanted to believe. They were told they had to pay taxes to support an established church. They had extremely articulate clergy that went around the states and preached separation in those terms. There never has been a kumbaya period for Christianity in the United States. Uh, none, there's no period in our history where you can find all of the Christian sects holding hands and agreeing on anything, in fact. More recently, uh, according in, in the middle, actually, uh, after the Baptists and the, and the Quakers have their problems with the Congregationalists and everybody else isn't getting along, we get to the problems with the Catholics and the Protestants, uh, which, which is a very complicated story that has a lot to do with how you define democracy and dual allegiance to church and state. Uh, but I won't get into that today. Uh, and more recently, of course, we have you know, the very last permissible group to discriminate against in the United States, of course, is the atheists. They are the single most hated minority group uh, at this point, but they are still part of the culture of diversity and distinction and actually vibrancy. So what I would stress is that the distinctive quality of the United States is its ability to support an ever-increasing diversity. Uh, if you've read Diana Eck's work, which is absolutely fascinating about the number of sects in the United States, it's mind-boggling. Uh, and it's not just on the coast. It's in the, the Midwest and, and the South as, where, as well. So why would you place this Establishment Clause disability on the federal government? That's the question. And the answer is pretty clear. There was a fear of the concentration of power in a national government and the fear of a concentration of power joined by a religious entity being able to use the national power to dominate the country. And so there had to be a way to make sure that no religious entity could do that. That, I take it, everybody agrees that the federal government may not establish a religion. So the question before us is why not apply it to the states? 
The Establishment Clause was a political compromise. The principle of keeping the power spheres of government and religion distinct does not require reference to federal or state government. The, the idea obviously makes sense applied to the states as well as the federal government because it's been applied to the states for years. It's not the principle that would keep it from being applied to the states. It's that political compromise. So if we are going to go with original intention, the original intention on the basis of that compromise is no incorporation of the Establishment Clause against the states because the states weren't supposed to be limited by the Establishment Clause, which would mean that Justice Thomas would have to be willing to roll back every case under the Establishment Clause. He is not. And let me explain what's wrong with the approach that he has suggested. In the end, having read this over many times, thinking I was getting it wrong each time, I'm just mystified. Because he starts out by saying, disincorporation, the Establishment Clause is not a rights-bearing clause. It's the rights-bearing clauses that should put you into incorporation. So he's not against incorporation as a general matter, only with respect to the Establishment Clause, because it's not a rights clause. But then he points to cases that he agrees should stand, even if disincorporation uh, occurs for the Establishment Clause. And the cases that he points to are cases like uh, Larkin v. Grendel's Den, right, where uh, churches had the ability to determine whether or not a liquor license would be issued near them. Uh, or Kiryah Yoel, where uh, we have a religious organization that uses its own neighborhood boundaries as the sole determinant to figure out what the school district boundaries are. Or Rosenberger, where the question was whether or not the government can prefer one religion over other religions. Now, he wants to say that these are rights-based cases because if you keep the government from coercing religion, you increase religious liberty. And so, therefore, these cases might more properly be decided under the Free Exercise Clause. But that is uh, definitely a Supreme Court pretzel argument. It doesn't make any sense. Those cases are all about power. Does the government have the power to give its power to a religious entity to determine liquor license control? The court says no. Does the government have the power to draw a school district according to the way a religious group wants it drawn because they are a chosen insular group? The answer is no. These are power cases. Now, he's right that if you have disestablishment, you are more likely to increase liberty. That's exactly what James Madison believed, that disestablishment is one of the means to religious liberty. But it doesn't mean that you are only dealing with rights. You're still, still, you're in this arena of power, of a separation of power between church and state, and not just talking about individual rights. So in the end, he says that his theory is an anti-coercion theory. But it's very unclear why you need to disincorporate the Establishment Clause to have a full anti-coercion theory, right? Chief Justice Rehnquist's view was that you shouldn't 
let the establishment clause govern any instance unless you could prove coercion. And only in cases of coercion, then the establishment clause would kick in. In the end, that is actually Justice Thomas's theory. It's all about coercion and switching establishment clause power cases under the umbrella of the free exercise clause. So in the end, it seems to me that we are getting a lot more than we need. His theory of disincorporation does not take you down new paths. It simply rearticulates what it is that Chief Justice Rehnquist was working on from the day he walked into the court. And whether I agree with that or not, that's in place. And I think that it is no service to the doctrine, which by these quarters is being criticized as being incredibly confusing and inconsistent. There's no service to that doctrine to now introduce the concept of disincorporation after all these years of incorporation. So in the end, I have to say I am not persuaded by Justice Thomas's theory. He calls it federalism. There's no one who's a greater fan of federalism in this room than I am, uh, but it isn't. In the end, he has a theory of coercion. Disincorporation is irrelevant, and we are back to where we started. Thanks very much. Before we uh, turn it over to a little Q&A from the uh, audience, I was going to uh, ask each of the panelists if, the, if they'd like to say a few remarks uh, in response to what they've heard from each other, uh, beginning uh, with Professor Eastman. Uh, you could uh, remain seated uh, for, the, uh, for, for these kind of short remarks, and then I'll uh, recognize uh, those who want to ask questions. You can uh, already start lining up at the uh, at the microphone. If you've been to one of the um, panels that I've moderated before, you know you're likely, if, if your real intention is to um, filibuster and not ask a question, that I'll probably interrupt you. Uh, what we really care about is an opportunity for questions. Uh, but um, you, you, you've heard uh, from both uh, Professor Hamburg and Professor Hamilton, uh, Dean Eastman, uh, uh, what what, if anything, would you like to say uh, in response? Can we uh, have the mics turned on for their uh, at the table? Yeah. With respect to Phil Hamburger, buy his book. He's a lot more of that in there, um, and and it's it's good stuff. Um, I, I've got two questions for uh, Marcy. Uh, the first, I, I agree. That one of the things that distinguishes America so much, and you know, goes back to Tocqueville talking about this, um, and we continue to talk about it, is the vibrance of our religious institutions. Um, my question is, how much of that ongoing vibrance is equity capital built up prior to 1947, and how long will it last if 1947's decision in Everson is going to have the consequences I, I predict? And the second thing I want to take up is the issue that Justice Thomas's opinions on this are confused. Um, I don't think so. I think what he's doing is laying down a marker for us, this invitation to revisit the incorporation establishment clause. That's part one. Um, and then part two says, but look, if, if we're not going to go wholesale and unincorporate, you know, which he, he hasn't even gotten Justice Scalia to join with him on that effort yet. Then he starts laying the groundwork for what would an uh, incorporated establishment clause look like um, if we're going to keep it incorporated, that is as respective of federalism as it can be. 
and his and his repudiation of jot for jot incorporation. Um, uh, the notion that because the states have a different source of power and a different uh, different kinds of duties than the federal government does, that if we're going to apply the establishment clause to the states at all, it ought to be applied in a different manner than it's applied against the federal government. And so, yeah, that position contradicts the, 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 the first half of the opinions, but it's not incoherent. He's just saying, look, if I, if I don't get five votes for part one, here's part two, and let's start looking at it in those terms. And I, I think that's perfectly coherent, and there's much more than just an... Um, uh, an anti-coercion principle in it. Although I, I, I do regret his citation of Curious Yule, um, but but I, it's just a it's just a brief citation. He doesn't elaborate on. I think Curious Yule has to go the other direction if you take seriously his other arguments in the in the case. Uh, well, with respect to the first question about the vibrancy of belief in the United States, the statistics show that uh, it is obviously still. Uh, one of the most highly religious countries in the world, but not just in identification of identity as religious, but also in practice. Uh, far more practice of religious activity. It's a question. And it's quite clear that uh, if it's, the notion of a, a Christian country is actually just a, an abstraction with no content. There's never been, as I said before, a Christian entity. There have always been Baptists and Methodists and, and a wide variety who all disagree with each other on very important issues. So uh, I would reject the Christian country label. Um, with respect to Justice Thomas, um, that's a very charitable reading, uh, that he's not contradicting himself. I think it's not accurate. But in the end, if you concede that he's wrong about Kiryas Joel, then... Uh, you're walking down my path, pretty much. Uh, if, if, if that doesn't belong in his theory, then he's inconsistent. And what's going on here is that he wants to do something radical, but in his gut, he knows none of those cases will ever be reversed. So he's got to figure out how to build those cases into his doctrine, and they don't fit. So uh, I, I just think he's just got to admit some cases don't fit his theory. Uh, thank you. I'd like to begin just by commenting on the nature of this conversation. Uh, essentially, we have an incorporation doctrine, a separation of church and state doctrine, which is, as Marcy aptly put it, irreversible precedent, or at least so it seems. And that very rigidity has forced many people into exploring alternative theories and getting, if not all the way back, at least an inch back to something a little bit more balanced. And therefore, although I'm not sure I agree with John about the federalism interpretation of the First Amendment, in fact, I, I, I do disagree with him on that, I can understand why he's doing it. It's a very lawyerly response to an otherwise intractable situation. Uh, Marcy suggests that the, this really is an irreversible precedent, and I'm not sure I know what that means. Incorporation and separation of church and state surely are embedded in our case law, but Many other things have been, too. It's not the first rotund phrase to have distorted the Constitution. I can think of another also using the word uh, separate. Um, separate but equal. It rolled off the, t uh, the tongue easily for a long time, and it was only later that people came to realize through the history how profoundly prejudiced it was. Just a few little quick comments. On the vibrancy of religion, of course we have vibrancy of religion in this country and long have, but why attribute that to separation church and state? I would have thought disestablishment is what helps, gives us a vibrant uh, religion. And as for the Baptists, it was said by Marcy, uh, 
whose work I very much admire, but more I confess on the free exercise side, uh, <laughs> the, the, the Baptists were the first to think in terms of separation and that they preached separation in those terms. I confess, I, I haven't looked at all the evidence, but I've tried. Uh, I haven't found evidence of this thus far over years. Separation of church and state in 18th century was not a demand, but an accusation establishment ministers, going all the way back to Hooker, by the way, in the 16th century, will say about dissenters, you know, they say they want religious liberty, but you know what they really want? They want to separate church and state, meaning they want to separate the state from the foundations of morality. And dissenters carefully avoided taking this position as a result, and it's not really what they wanted. One group of Baptists have found to say that the state, church and state should be disconnected prior to 1791. The General Baptists of Virginia do this in the petition of 1782. The next year, they rapidly alter the petition and change it because they realized what they had said and decided that wasn't really what they had in mind. Um, and one last thought. Anti-Catholicism, I think Marcy is absolutely right here, was very complicated. Very difficult questions arose in the context of anti-Catholicism. But distrust of a minority surely is not a justification for altering one's definition of religious liberty so as to make it discriminatory. On the contrary, it's grounds for standing up for one's definition of religious liberty, a non-discriminatory definition. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, we'll take our first question. Oh, well, all right. Uh, Mark, uh, Professor Hamilton wants to I just want to say one respond. quick thing. Right. Uh, it's not just embedded in case law. I defy anyone in this room to issue a press release in which they say that the states may now have a single religion. That won't happen. It won't even happen in Utah or Maryland. It's just not going to happen. And why? Because it's embedded in the culture that no one religion controls government levers. I'll agree. Years ago, I, I was debating a federal judge on, on this question. And she said, well, I would just violate and let me quote the First Amendment's, quote, separation of church and state. And I said, you know, look, I, I know you said the word quote, but it's not in there. And, and she said, well, it certainly is. And I, you know, I said, look, I got a copy right here. And I read it to her. And I said, those words are not there. So what are you putting quotes around? She, and her answer was, you obviously have a defective copy. Um, <laughs> and and um, so, so Marcy's right. It's deeply embedded. I, I just question whether it's right. Uh, yeah, uh, one, one, one last remark. Two sentences. Yes. First, uh, last I recall, there are no two words that the First Amendment, sorry, that, that the Establishment Clause and Separation Church and State have in common other than the word of, if you think that's significant. <laughs> Second, um, there is a certain risk in arguments for separation church and state in implying extremes, such that it's if you're against separation church and state, you're in favor of Christian nation or just one religion. And I think, on the contrary, most of us who argue against separation church and state simply want to defend the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. First question. Professor Hamburger, uh, Article 6, Section 3 has a, uh, a prohibition against the uh, uh, religious qualification test for office holders, but it also has a requirement for state, for federal and state officers to take an oath or affirmation, which implies uh, a belief in divine power or at least some virtuous responsibility for veracity. You refer to 
Article or uh, Amendment 10 and the uh, Republican form of government is the, is the two bulwarks that uh, the disestablishment types referred to. What does Section 3 of Article 6 uh, tell us about the free exercise and, and the uh, anti-establishment provisions okay. for a corporation? Yes, thank you. It, it would seem to suggest that uh, the First Amendment does not exclude a role of religion in government, doesn't it? And I suppose one could say that if one doesn't believe, you'd have no objection to taking the oath. But I don't think we need to step that low. It does. It seems to assume a role of religion, uh, to which I might just add the very words of the First Amendment permit laws regarding religion. Right. Congress should make no law respecting an establishment of religion. OK, that means you can actually make laws respecting religion as long as they don't establish it, respect an establishment of it. And in fact, this is supported by the history of that phraseology. Uh, Madison always insisted religion is beyond the cognizance of civil government. That was an extreme statement. Religious denominations didn't want this. It interferes in church property laws, interferes in marriage laws, etc., not to mention exemption laws for Quakers. So they all wanted a little leeway. And that's why we have Congress should make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So we can, can have laws regarding religion. Professor Hamilton, do you want to respond? Either one of you would Yeah, the, uh, there was a, during the ratification debates in South Carolina, one of the amendments proposed um, was to insert uh, the word other in, in the uh, no religious test clause, recognizing that the oath clause was itself a religious test um, and that, and that, you know, just to clean it up a little bit so that we would acknowledge that. Um, uh, you know, but it says oath or affirmation, and today that's often taken as a protection of atheists, for example. It wasn't. Uh, the affirmation clause was designed to protect those who were even more scrupulous in their religious belief, uh, Quakers uh, largely, who, who took seriously the admonition in the Bible not to, not to swear an oath against heaven um, in, in anything. So that's what the affirmation clause there. It's not the way we've interpreted it more recently. Next question. Uh, I'm David Mayer from Kaplan University Law School in Columbus, Ohio, and I wanted to ask the panel about the bifurcation of the First Amendment religion clause into two separate clauses, the free exercise clause and the establishment clause, which it seems to me is also an invention of 20th century constitutional law. Uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, used his famous wall metaphor to refer to both free exercise and, and non-establishment. And uh, I, I, I think it's fair to say that Madison thought of a unitary uh, freedom of conscience right, which had two aspects. Also, grammatically, there is one clause that has two phrases. Um, so my question is, couldn't it be argued that the bifurcation of the First Amendment religion clause is as much or if not greater uh, transformation of original understanding than the incorporation doctrine? Uh, I'd like Professor Hamilton, if you're interested in responding to that first, go ahead. Uh, I, I think that's, uh, well, there are two answers to that. One is it's hard to read the history that way given the way that the clause was drafted uh, and moved around. Uh, so uh, they were separate clauses. And, and frankly, on your theory, it's all one clause. So it's speech, establishment, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that's very persuasive. Um, and I'll leave it at that. It just, the way that Madison drafted it, and it went through all these changes, sometimes it had an establishment clause in it, sometimes it had free exercise, sometimes it had a conscience clause in it, quite a variety. And, uh, and 
dealt with that so they were individual entities. And oftentimes it had both free exercise and a freedom of conscience clause, which, right. which was odd. Uh, but, but I think there's an, a, another point to be made here, um, and that is um, the two uh, parts of the clause. I mean, you're right, grammatically it's a single, but the two parts of it aim at different things. And it allows you, if you accept my federalism understanding of the Establishment Clause, to, for example, recognize that Massachusetts had an establishment but also had one of the strongest free exercise or freedom of conscience clauses of the original states. And they didn't see those things as incompatible. Um, we have so interpreted the Establishment Clause over the last 50 years to almost force a confrontation between the two that didn't exist. They were, it was perfectly okay to have state support of religion generally or even a particular religion as long as you didn't compel uh, a, a belief in it. And, and then some states did go further and compel a belief in it, and that's where you end up with the freedom of conscience and free exercise clauses coming to the forefront. But, but the Massachusetts Freedom of Conscience Clause, what it meant is you had a right to believe anything you wanted, and if you disagreed with the dominant religion in the state, you should leave. It did not mean coexistence. Uh, Mark Middleman from St. Louis. Uh, when we talk about incorporation, we're, I, I've noticed that all the panelists have sort of left out the tortured history of the 14th Amendment uh, interpretation in which first the Privileges and Immunities Clause was read out, uh, and then uh, the due process clause was used uh, to bring back uh, something called incorporation. We know, for one thing, that uh, Justice Thomas uh, is also interested in recovering the privileges and immunities uh, clause uh, and perhaps uh, dealing with incorporation in that fashion. Uh, could you all comment on, uh, on that whole aspect of the incorporation? I, I, I often compare this problem when I'm, when I'm teaching um, uh, to my students to the little childhood game where the... the um, the, the, the critter pops up and you hammer it down and it pops up after another hole. Uh, this idea of fundamental rights um, is such a part of our history and the whole understanding of our governing structures that if you shoot it down on privileges and immunities where it was designed to be, it pops up under due process or substantive due process or the substantive component of equal protection or the unenumerated penumbras in the Ninth Amendment or whatever. Um, uh, and, and, you know, the problem is not with the understanding we ought to have unenumerated rights or fundamental principles or even incorporation of, of, of some things. Um, the, the problem is that the court doesn't understand the basis on which those decisions ought to be made. Well, do you want to say? Well, uh, I, I share this view that fundamental rights is a word so broad in its potential meanings that one can scarcely discern what it means without a lot of elaboration. Uh, it's been used over the centuries to refer to natural rights, constitutional rights, and then what we now have, which seem to be some super constitutional rights, not natural, of course, uh, referred to by the 14th Amendment and thus sort of brought within the realm of ordinary law. Uh, it, it seems to me it doesn't help very much. And uh, I think yet a lot of work has to be done on the 14th Amendment, and uh, well, perhaps one day I'll get to it. But in the meantime, all I can say is there are a lot of mysteries in there. Uh, it is remarkably, a remarkably well-reported debate. It's also very different from the debates in the 18th century, where we mostly just have Madison's account with a few supplements. This is a debate which is reported in newspapers. We also have pamphlet versions of what was stated that sent out to uh, constituents by senators and, and representatives. So we know what they, well, how they want to represent themselves. So we have a lot of information here, and it seems to me one day it deserves some fresh study. Professor well, well and, and just one, one other quick note, and that is that uh, one of the reasons you're not hearing a lot about the 14th Amendment's intent 
is because if you read the 14th Amendment's history in toto, you can find a contradiction for almost every page. It is a convoluted, confusing set of statements. And for law office history, it's great because you can pick out what you want. But for real history, it's not very helpful. It's very hard to tell an intent for anybody in those rooms. So we're kind of stuck with theory as opposed to uh, any kind of concrete original intent. I, I rather agree with that. Yeah, I just want to add one little thought here, which is that if, in fact, the 14th Amendment was designed to incorporate the Bill of Rights against the states, I think we would have heard a lot more about it. The first unambiguous, utterly unambiguous statement about this from one of the people involved in the drafting comes in 1871. And he contradicts Bingham, and he contradicts that position in a, Senate com- in, in a committee um, on the Hill two months earlier. So if, in fact, there was incorporation intended, it's curious we haven't heard more about it. Before. So it's John Bingham from Ohio. Right. Yes. Next question. Let me lay out a basic uh, framework, kind of where I'm coming from uh, on this, and you can analyze that. And, and then secondly, a question that falls from that. And basically, how I describe it is there's a basic pull between two positions um, at the time of the founding. One is more represented by Jefferson, who views religious freedom as an individual right. And the other is the communitarian position, which has a long tradition of Puritans um, in believing in this, the, the general common belief um, at the time it should prevail in a particular state. And a, a federalist approach to the interpretation of the First Amendment seems to be a compromise that really allowed for both the communitarian and the individual's perspective of Jefferson to, Jefferson to coexist in the states during that time period. But over time, it seems as though Jefferson's position has won. Um, in light of that, and in light of that fact that he viewed it as an individual right, and he said in his, um, in his bill for religious freedom that it's sinful and tyrannical to force a person to pay for the propagation of ideas which he just does not believe in, and that's the foundation of his perspective, which has come to prevail. What's the implications for, for example, ed- education? When you extend the implications of, you know, you might separate church and state on the level of institutions, but really the propagation of ideas in education is really fundamental. And so wouldn't the implication of the First Amendment in education be that there should be a separation of church and state? Isn't that the final, I mean, separation doesn't that have to occur if we're going to implement the kind of methodology that's presently being proposed? I'd go the other direction. I I think uh, uh, if if we were to take Jefferson seriously in its full implications that I should have to pay for no idea that I disagree with, that we wouldn't have public schools at all, because they teach a whole lot of crap in there that I disagree with. But, but that's why the federalism solution is the right one in a pluralistic society. And maybe, maybe the growth of our country makes it impossible to have establishment statewide, but it ought not to be impossible to have the little community of Curious Yo want to have a public school supported by their community where they can say prayer in accord with their faith. What we've done is pretend that there's no public aspect of religion. Justice Scalia talks about this in his dissent in Lee versus Weissman. If a religion were just a matter of private concern to be treated, you know, something that ought to be, you know, confined to the privacy of one home, like pornography, wonderful turn of phrase, um, uh, then there wouldn't be these conflicts. But, you know, most believers think that you ought to have a public affirmation, particularly at monumental moments in your life, like graduation, uh, like swearing in somebody into office when they're going to take an oath. Um, and, and, and that this public uh, community uh, aspect of religion is critically important. And so what we've done is adopt a separation view that excludes that, but adopts with almost religious fervor every count 
counter-religion view, and we insist that people go to public schools to learn it. Well, but that presumes there is a religion, and there is not a religion in any community in the country, as proved by the Wiccan woman in Virginia who wanted to read uh, the, the uh, opening of the city council. They had a cycle, right? And so uh, they had a Baptist, and they had a Methodist, they had a rabbi. I think they even had an imam. But they said the Wiccan couldn't do it. Now, that's what America is right now. The Wiccan is there, and she believes vibrantly. The notion that there is a religion to do what John just described is just false. If there was a religion to do that, that might be one thing. But there is no single religion, uh, except if communities can use political power to define their boundaries to exclude all others, which is what Kiriashoel was about. It wasn't about including themselves. It was about excluding the others. That's a different issue. You want to say anything more, John? Um, sure. Uh, first, as to Jefferson, last I recalled, when the Bill of Rights was being framed, he wasn't working on the language of Constitution. He was in Paris doing whatever he did with Sally. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. Mariah. No, it uh, wasn't Sally. And <laughs> as for those Wiccans, uh, they actually raise a very interesting conceptual problem. I'm not sure there's a neat answer to it, but one thing one might hope for is consistency. Uh, there have been attempts to defend uh, the rights of Wiccans on the free exercise grounds, and then rapidly thereafter a protest. But it's not an establishment to, you know, to teach Wiccan stuff in public schools. And I just don't get that. Uh, it's one or the other, uh, but it just strikes me that if it's a religion, you get the benefit or pain of both clauses. Uh, one can't pick and choose between them. It's a sort of natural regulatory process within the First Amendment that we have the same use of the word religion. It even satisfies Wittgenstein, right? Because if we use the word religion twice, he said, well, these are two different types of religion, perhaps, but it says thereof. So we know it's the same religion. <laughs> um, and then well, the one Wiccans will tell you they are a religion. <laughs> Some they, of they sometimes. No, no, they will. I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, you should. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, before we get the next question, uh, I want to remind everyone, if you have a cell phone uh, that, that you know, has a ringtone like when the saints go marching in <laughs> or um, hold that tiger, you know, please um, quiet it. Next question. Charlie Stamball from Jacksonville, Florida. The state and local governments, I, I think, have abdicated that constitutionally uh, given responsibility for the protection of the morality or the morals of their, of their citizens. And it seems to me you either accept that as a good thing or you look for a way to challenge the current uh, situation, which is the incorporation of the states in that 14th Amendment. So which do we prefer? Yeah, I'm not so sure the states have abdicated that responsibility. I think that it's been taken from them, at least a good number of the states. I'm thinking, for example, most recently, the Texas versus Lawrence case involving the Texas anti-sodomy statute, which they can consider to be part of their ongoing efforts to uh, police power clause. And the Supreme Court said you're not allowed to do that anymore. In fact, you cannot do anything uh, to further morality. Um, uh, and so, so th this aspect has been taken from them. You know, we can then debate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's certainly a good thing if we define liberty in, in a very expansive way. But I don't think that's the way the founders uh, envisioned it. And, and, you know, there was a reason that the police power was defined in the way it does. You, you go back and you trace the history of the definition of the police power in Supreme Court precedent. Um, it used to be health, safety, welfare and morals of the people. We now just kind of truncate it, health, safety and welfare. 
Um, and, and so we've lost something there, and I think it coincides with uh, the, the, the loss in, in Everson. This is another one of those broad sweeps that can't be accurately supported, right? The notion that local government's given up on morality is just hard to hear. Uh, in my community, which is Washington Crossing, where Washington crossed the Delaware, Pennsylvania, uh, there's a rule which we just learned about. I didn't know about it. My son did. He's a teenager, which I was glad he knew about it before I did. There was a party down the street from us this weekend after a school uh, dance, and uh, the cops came because they were very loud. Fifty kids were arrested. Now, it's not because 50 kids were drinking. It's because 10 kids were drinking. But the moral rule in Washington Crossing is that if you stay at a party where there's drinking, you're just as guilty as the kids who are drinking. That's morality. And you can find that threaded all through the law. And so you may have objections to certain types of morality, but that, I, I just don't think you can say that we've lost morality in Toto in the, in the local community. I just don't see it. Maybe it's because I live in California. I see <laughs> Move to Alabama, where yeah. when I was attorney general, I had to defend a sex toy law. <laughs> Mark Scarberry, uh, Pepperdine Law School, also in California, or in Malibu. Um, if we're thinking about whether the Establishment Clause can be incorporated, and in doing that, thinking about what's its content and does that make it subject to something that, something that could be incorporated, I'm, I noted that John focused on the original public meaning uh, as of the time of adoption of the First Amendment. Wouldn't it make more sense to ask what it was thought to mean at the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment? Wondering if you could comment on that, or perhaps you think the, the, the meaning at that point was so muddled, as, as the other two panelists have suggested, that that's not helpful. And, and then for Philip, if, if nativism was pushing the court toward separation of church and state and incorporating that, was there a push to then incorporate it, to, to bring back the Privileges and Immunities Clause, incorporate not just the Establishment Clause that way, but other constitutional rights as well, which would then limit those rights to citizens. And the immigrants who weren't citizens then wouldn't get the protection of those rights against native state governments. Yeah, let me, uh, um, it's a very good question. There's, uh, the reason I focus on the founding period is, is not so much to say that necessarily is going to govern at the 14th Amendment. And you're right, the, the understanding at the 14th Amendment would govern. But I was focusing on it because um, if I'm right about their view of the, the keep, you know, non-interference aspect of, um, of, of the Establishment Clause and its two components, a no national church, because that would essentially shut down all the other churches, and no other interference, because there are lots of other ways we might interfere, um, then the notion of incorporation is particularly weak when you're talking about the Establishment Clause, because it basically allows, in fact, requires the federal government through the courts to do precisely the thing that was forbidden to them by the First Amendment. And, and, and so if that's the understanding in 1791, um, you'd want a much clearer articulation that they want to turn that understanding on its head than anything we get out of the 14th Amendment debates. But of course, by 1868, there weren't state establishments. So that no, would no be but, the, but there, weren't any, there weren't any of the hard state establishments, but there was extensive support of religion. The whole school system, I mean, we talk about public versus private. That didn't exist. You know, you, first thing put up was the town meeting hall, which was the church. And on, 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 on Wednesday nights, it was the dance hall or, or Saturday nights it was the dance hall. On Sunday, it was the it was the it was the it was the church. And during the week, it was the school. And on Wednesday night, it was the town council meeting. Uh, you know, talk about separation of church and state. It didn't exist. 
This was the same building and the same people and same players. Uh, just a comment on the first question. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the debate, uh, Akhil Amar and Kurt Lash made very elegant arguments to the fact that, okay, so the First Amendment may not have meant what you thought it meant or wanted in 1791, but perhaps in 1868 it gets transformed into meaning during the course of incorporation against the states. It's a very, it's, a, it's, it's an elegant argument. Uh, unfortunately for that argument, I'm not sure there was much evidence of incorporation at the time, and to the extent that meaning is transformed, it's not transformed in some enlightened pursuit of greater religious liberty, but rather to exclude Catholics, um, and if not by amendment, then by interpretation. And that's just not quite so pretty, is it? Uh, now, as for the question put to me, uh, I thought that's a sophisticated question about uh, Americans in the 1920s and, well, from the 1840s up through the 1940s, um, who did not think in so complex ways. Uh, the standard nativist arguments don't get down to particular clauses of the Fourth Amendment. It's simply that there are American liberties, and these are protected by the Bill of Rights, and that's usually where it stops. Um, so just for the Klansmen's Creed, what's recited by Klansmen and Klanswomen, by the way, um, in, their, in, their, in their worship, one of the things they recite is, I believe in the eternal separation of church and state. It's not much of a constitutional argument, but it's the sort of cultural background which shapes more complex arguments. And the nativism wasn't so overt in the Supreme Court that no, the court would then seize on privileges and immunities in that more subtle way. That's yes, quite. I agree. Okay. Next question. Thanks. Uh, uh, Professor Hamilton, I, I wonder to the extent, uh, and I would tend to agree with you, that uh, we largely have enculturated a resistance to outright uh, state establishments. Uh, but but having so stated, um, is it necessary to then defend uh, the incorporation if the fear is not the rise of fully established state religions, but rather that question of whether or not uh, prayer at school is all right if they don't let the Wiccans? In other words, if we let the market decide when a religion has risen to a level within a community, uh, that it would be practiced much as, you know, uh, third parties have to fight to get on the uh, the political ballot? Uh, well, I mean, I, I'll take all day to criticize the two-party system, but uh, <laughs> I think it's a big mistake. But, uh, I, you know, I just think that um, for this audience, it's not persuasive. I'm fully aware. Uh, but well, the reality... Well, you might persuade me. No, yeah, well, uh, the reality that is unavoidable is that if you sit on a subway in New York, there's going to be many religions in the same car with you. We live in a culture of unbelievable diversity. And we live in America where if you don't like what your mother church says, you just create your own church. You break off. You take your parish and you go packing. We proliferate religions in the United States. And I think it is extremely subversive in the same concerns that Philip has with respect to the Catholics at a certain time in history. I think it's very subversive to attempt to uh, identify or honor either a majority or a gathering of religions without reference to the vast diversity. Diversity has always been the mark of American religion, and it still is. And I, I understand, I think, why. We have such a push for a Christian country right now. But I think it's reactionary rather than looking forward into where, where America really is going. 
But, but, but here's the problem. That diversity, courtesy of the Supreme Court, has brought us to the point where the overwhelming number of believing citizens can't say as innocuous a prayer as God of the free and home of the brave, watch over these graduates. Wait, let's do the numbers. The majority of Christians don't want to do that. The problem with the debate in America right now is that conservative Christians are religious and everybody else is secular. But if you have an 86% believer rate in a country, they're not secular. It's religious people debating religious people. Some religious people want prayers in the schools. Many religious people don't want prayers in the schools. And all I ask for is accurate factual bases to have these debates. So and that's the accuracy of it. No, it's not. So what, yes, we it ought to, so what we ought to do is throw it up to a vote like they did in Santa Fe School District down in Texas. Let's have two votes. First, should we have a student comment before the football game? And second, if we should, so two votes, uh, then, then pick somebody to give it. And it passed overwhelmingly that, yes, we ought to have a student comment, and then we ought to pick this student so she can actually give an invocation. And, 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 and overwhelming majority. And I, you know, and, and I find that not, you know, not in New York, I'll concede, and not in San Francisco, and probably not in L.A., but in a lot of places in this country, you would win 80, 90 percent of those numbers. Um, and, ha- and both of the people who brought that claim and the people who brought the claim against Judge Roy Moore in Alabama for his two-ton granite Ten Commandments have had to be under National Guard protection. Think about that. So what you're talking about is rank majoritarianism and empowering that kind of will to power that is exactly what Nietzsche described, that is extremely subversive but, but to Marcy, what is best about America. But Marcy, what you're talking about is single heckler's veto to shut down the thing that overwhelming majority of people in certain locales want. That's not pluralism. That's mandate from the Supreme Court that would tell to, you know, to large majorities, you can't do what you want. If you think prayer has to have some public aspect, you're not allowed to do that. We're going to restrict your free exercise in ways never envisioned by the founders. Uh, and we're going to do it by, by, from Washington, D.C., by nine people on the court. That's neither federalism nor a proper understanding of originalism of either free exercise or the Establishment Clause. No. <laughs> What, yeah, what, that's a good stump speech, but it's not accurate. Well, well, for whatever, as a matter of some historical accuracy, I, I, I had some role in the removal of that two-ton monument <laughs> from the rotunda of the Alabama Judicial Building. But I don't recall Professor Hamilton, uh, Steve Glassroth, who was the plaintiff in the case and is a lawyer in Montgomery, ever having been under National Guard protection. Well, that's according to his lawyers. Um, it's news to me, but uh, but I had 24 hours of security. <laughs> yes, uh, my I point was, proved. I was wondering if you did uh, disincorporate the establishment clause. What do you think that would mean in practical terms for the states? Like, what types of laws do you think states should be able to pass respecting religion, or would they pass? And what types of laws would they still not be able to pass? Well, see, I think that's a good question. That must be a law student. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a very good question, and, and, and it goes back to what I think Justice Thomas is trying to do in the second half of his opinion, um, and that is try and uh, tease out the difference between uh, where there's a coercive establishment that actually inviolate, would violate free exercise or freedom of conscience principles and where there's not. 
and, and, and he wants to repudiate the entire line of cases and thinking from Justice O'Connor on the endorsement principle, that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't violate your freedom of conscience to have to walk by Ten Commandments um, or to have to listen in respectful silence to a prayer that the majority in the community wants to have at a monumental uh, event in, in, in their children's lives. Um, so, so I, I, you know, a lot of those things that we take as violations of the Establishment Clause now would be perfectly permissible. Um, uh, even, even saying, you know, curious, oh, look, you want to, this is, this is going to be uh, for the Hasidic Jewish community because uh, our practices make it so difficult to in, engage otherwise. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, if you force somebody who doesn't believe in that to have to live in that district and go to that school and adhere to that belief, now you've crossed the line. But it's a free exercise line. It's not an establishment clause line. And that, at least that's what Justice Thomas is trying to tease out in the second half of, those, of, the, of the new Dow opinion in, in, in primarily. It, it, it seems to me that question very rightly gets to the presumed facts, the particulars residing in our brain that we're worried about when we talk in our generalities. And one of the things that worries me about Marcy's arguments, persuasive as they may seem on the surface, is that they're assuming we just have two extremes. Nativists long argued, well, you're either in favor of separation, or if not, you must want a union of church and state, like the papal states. And Marcy, I'm worried, was attributing extreme views to persons who I think we're all pretty moderate in just seeking a disestablishment, not an establishment. Um, she says it's subversive Amer- American views. That's actually the sort of language which I hope does not enter to these debates. There's been too much of that for 150 odd years. Uh, she's absolutely right. Marcy, I think, is absolutely right. The diversity is a major concern here, but it hardly seems to me that resolves the matter. Uh, American religion is not torn in some epic struggle with secularism. The, re- the transformation of American religion, the religious scene in this country over the last 200 years and continuing, is not about secularism, but about theological orthodoxy versus theological liberalism. And put another way, do you, does your, are you part of a religious group that believes the individual is the source of authority, or is the group, in some sense, or hierarchy a source of authority? That's the wedge that forced through separation. And it strikes me to adopt a standard in the First Amendment, separation of church and state, that on its face discriminates along theological grounds is profoundly inappropriate. There also, we, perhaps we can draft a better First Amendment, but to include theological distinctions of the First Amendment surely can't be right. Um, and so my response to your question would be, there are many possibilities, but I'm, I'm not aware that a union of church and state or, or an establishment of religion is really what's likely to follow. Well, and of course, the problem with Philip's statement is that he's now reduced the vast diversity of religious belief in the United States to two sides. There's not two <clears throat> sides. Uh, There's thousands. Uh, and that's the problem. That's what's difficult about the United States. And I don't think that... Uh, rolling back where we've come is going to help us into the future. This is a future we don't understand. It's very difficult to figure out how to bring into the culture and treat as Americans so many people who don't believe anything remotely like what you believe. Just very briefly, I I don't want to debate theology here, but I suspect most church historians, at least all those that I know of, would agree, in fact, would put it more emphatically, 
people of all sorts of groups come to this country and they find not only do they become Americans, but their relationship to God, as they, at least as they see it, changes. And that has a lot to do with the physical space of America, the nature of the society. Uh, the pressures on religion, particularly various forms of orthodoxy in different traditions um, and of ecclesiastical authority in different traditions, is profound. And uh, it leads very often in similar directions. And that's why there can be so many alliances, frankly, among so many different religious groups, because they're often altered in the same direction. Of course, it's not uniform, but uh, there are very strong strains on religion in this country. Our next question. Should be the last. I think we're done. Yeah, we're yeah this will be the. Uh, well, we'll allow one other after after this question. Um, hi, uh, my question is uh, principally for Professor Hamilton. Um, but don't worry, it's uh, just really more asking for information. Trust me, I'm not worried. About <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea. I just, I, I, I don't want the, anyone to feel We're on the same side most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> I hate it when people come here and they feel like they're personally being fired upon constantly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I do have to say that, uh, you know, I, I've been very involved in politics for a while and uh, used to be involved professionally. And, uh, you know, you may know that in 2004, two different... Um, Republican Party uh, headquarters, local ones, were fired into. And uh, when I showed up at my uh, my place that I was working at, I was establishing a new one, I had a note on the door that said, get out. So I don't know what uh, having to be under guard after you've filed a lawsuit says about our, our life, but I think that uh, at least uh, the experiences as I've had it is that uh, we're, I don't know if it's at a moment that's any uh, different, but we're certainly at an interesting moment. Is there a question? There is a question. Sorry. Um, Professor Hamilton, at the very beginning of your of your uh, of your uh, speech, you said that the uh, separationists uh, separationism was really the force behind the establishment clause uh, as it was uh, created at the Constitutional uh, Convention. And um, I I wonder uh, if you could. Uh, perhaps suggest some reading on that or some some uh, some history in, t- in regards to that because it sounds as, as though you're arguing that the kind of the Baptist spirit of separation had had really won the day there when uh, you know, there were many states that as been pointed out previously had established churches then they were the entrenched powerful ones that were the people from society were all members of those churches most most of the people who went to the the conventions uh, were were um, not religious, I don't know if you wouldn't say dissenters, were not members of minority religions in the United States at the time, and not establishing a church nationally at the much, at the time, I think it's not, it's not radical to say at the time, that was a much weaker level, leaving the power at the states and letting states continue to have their established churches or to establish new churches. Um, it's kind of a weak compromise, isn't it? You lose most of, of your position if the, the feeling was the separation is, winning at the time. Uh, <laughs> Wouldn't it more be that uh, that there would have been a, a provision in the states affecting the states to begin with? Isn't it more a, I mean, I, it just seemed to me that since the power was was with the established churches, didn't they kind of win by allowing them to to keep their state establishments? Uh, oh, yeah, they won the political compromise. That's true. As did the plantation owners with respect to slavery. There were all sorts of very ugly compromises that were necessary to get the, con- the Constitution through. And the person I view as the single most brilliant person at the convention is James Wilson. With respect to slavery, he said this constitution will never survive it. 
So, uh, yeah, it was a political compromise. Did the established churches win? Yes, but what's interesting is that they almost immediately began to disassemble. And uh, the states start to amend their constitutions very quickly to add their own disestablishment clauses. I mean, not the next day, but uh, over the next decades. And so if establishment or having a dominant church is part of the American fabric, it's interesting that it was gone by 1833. And you have to ask the question, historically, what does that say about establishment? And what that tells you is the establishment that's being, uh, you know, trumpeted up here is a very weak sister of the establishments that were in place. But it is uh, still related in the sense that the government can be co-opted by a particular religious viewpoint. So our last question. In regards to the diversity of religion, which Professor Hamilton um, accurately mentions to me i'm just i'm throwing this out does does that not point to a, a greater need to unincorporate the 14th amendment or against the states so that the states those states that do have more um a predominant religious view not not necessarily of a religious um sect but a, a philosophy um and also that that philosophy could frame their moral debate, for instance, um, in, in a different way than the Miller test does on pornography. I mean, the Miller test gives a t token um, local um, um, yep. standard. But to me, does that, shouldn't the states actually have more power to, to frame the religious issue in, in terms of their morality because because of the diversity because not every area in the country has an extreme amount of diversity of okay. religion or, or or of religious philosophy okay uh, no uh, that, 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 that's exactly the opposite of what ought to happen uh, what you're suggesting is that uh, a state with a majority of a particular religion or a political powerful religion which is a different thing uh, be the uh, provide the intellectual moral framework for the state. Uh, that that seems to me relatively indefensible uh, on the part of every other person in the state. There is no state that has all of one set of believers. No, no I'm not talking about a oh. church. I'm talking about a religious philosophy. Yeah. That that if people in a state or have um, a, a certain religious or moral philosophy, they they should have more power than than be, and, and not be dictated to by Supreme Court decisions as to what their their how their moral their morality is going to be framed in terms of the religious debate because you're arguing for ecumenicalism. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And, and pluralism and religion actually supports that. And the federalism solution offers it. Now, you might say the states have grown so big that the federalism solution doesn't even work at the statewide level. Uh, and, and the cottage industry of scholarship that has been produced after Justice Thomas's invitation in Zellman to start re-exploring this question, one of the more re interesting uh, student articles has suggested that if we are going to incorporate establishment clause and it, it, it is one that fosters 
there's pluralism at local community level, then we ought to apply it to the states in the same way we apply it to the federal government, but not to the local governments, which are in size comparable to the old states. A very interesting idea that would allow the pluralistic community. To, to be, but the only way you can go the other direction is if you assume every religious exercise has to be private. Because once you assume that part of the religious exercise has to be public, public affirmation at the community level, then what you're really doing is shutting down free exercise in order to implement that version of an anti-establishment proposition. And I think there's just no support for it, and I think it's debilitating to fostering the kind of moral virtue we need to survive. It doesn't have to be private. The question is whether the government's going to co-opt and stand behind it. That's the issue of disestablishment. Religion fills our public square. It is full of religion. The question is whether or not any particular religion or group of religions coming to agreement, which I'd like to be at that meeting, uh, are going to be able to get the government to stand behind them to give them more heft for their beliefs to dominate the community. That's what disestablishment is about. It's rare that I get the last word in anything. <laughs> but I'd actually like to take this opportunity just to thank my fellow panelists because I think we've shown aptly in response to the question that there are a diversity of points of view as to what religious liberty should be. Thank you. Thank you. Very nice to meet you.